This is an ABC podcast. No ia e Māori, aloha kakou, and good morning. This is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. It's Aggie here, your host for a Wednesday morning. What's on the show today? Well, in the 18th and 19th century, how influential was Australia on the Māori Pacifica community? A Sydney museum reveals more. A number of uh, firearms in Sydney that you would then take back to New Zealand and sort of the musket wars would then escalate from there. So so him picking up those weapons in Sydney sort of changed the face of warfare in New Zealand forever. We look to the Pacific Games, but not about the sport. It's all got to do with toilet paper. More on that later in the show. And how do you settle your family disputes? Would spears help? Well, there's one island nation holding on to this cultural tradition. I brought my son to learn so that the next time he can take part. It brings peace when there are disputes, and as long as this day ends with feasting, problems are solved. For more on any of our stories, please type into your search engine, ABC Pacific Beat, and from there, share across all your social media platforms. Again, I'm Aggie Dubal, and this is Pacific Beat. Now, firstly, to Papua New Guinea and the obsession with betel nut. Betel nut, or buai, is chewed almost every day by many Papua New Guineans. The trade and sale of the drug dominates a large portion of the informal sector within the country. But in Manus province, across the Bismarck Sea from PNG's mainland, it doesn't grow and is in short supply. Traders make the dangerous journey, but locals say many go missing and are killed. Thekla Gunya reports. In the Manus capital of Lorengau, the boy market is bustling, with locals coming through to stock up. Boy doesn't grow here in Manus, but the demand for it is just the same as any other province in Papua New Guinea. Traders are pulling up in boats with sacks of boy. Grace Roy is one of these traders. She says she often makes the 12 to 14 hour journey across the Bismarck Sea, but she is fearful of what can happen. There are cases of crimes out at sea because of the distance. I have a boat, and when I want to travel, we go with two or three other boats. Grace feels that she has to be part of the trade, because job prospects here are limited and she can earn fast cash because of the high demand for boy. But the sea presents a number of dangers. Besides drowning in sea, some traders say Others die at the hands of pirates. We hear that boats go missing or are washed onto islands. A few days later, we hear the stories. Men are doing these things. They're killing people at sea. In Salome village on Los Negros Island, Agnes Boyu is still holding out hope as son David and five other family members will return home. It's been two years since David, his two sons, and three of his cousins went missing. She tells me 
He left to go to Medang to buy buai to return and sell it so that he can make money for his children's school fees and to buy a new car. David and the others never returned from the mainland. The family believe they were killed by pirates because David was an experienced keeper and has been making the journey for more than five years. Charlie Stephen, David's brother-in-law, was the one who led the search. During the time... During the time we expected their return, they didn't come back, so we started the search. The team travelled from here to Weewak and stayed there for a month, but didn't succeed. And Charlie says there wasn't enough help from officials. We registered a report with police, but we didn't get proper support from the disaster office. We went ahead and met all the costs ourselves. Manus Governor Charlie Benjamin says he's told his people not to make the Jenny and wants to enforce a small crafts act, making it illegal for people to use dinghies and banana boats to travel from one province to another. There are instances where a lot of our people have perished uh, through bad weather and also through piracy. Uh, I've discouraged them, but you know, sometimes people do not listen. But many feel they have no other choice than to try and make money as a trader. For Grace, she thinks setting up communication towers so they have reception at sea will help save lives. It would be good to have a telecommunications network. If anything happens, it will happen. But we will know who was involved in the sea piracy. And that's Grace Roy, a beetle-nut trader in Manus, ending that report by Fikla Kunga. Pacific Beat. Now a showdown is looming in Vanuatu. This Friday, MPs will decide if the country's recently appointed Prime Minister, Sato Kilman, will keep his job. Mr Kilman only came into power in early September, but barely a month on, he's facing a challenge. Earlier this week, the government boycotted Parliament to avoid a no-confidence vote, which will now take place on Friday. While joining us this morning from Vanuatu capital is the Deputy Leader of the Opposition, Ralph Regan-Vanu. With that, I say good morning, sir. Good morning. Mr. Riganvanu, one month ago, again, you were in government, now you're in opposition, but by the end of this week, that could all change again. I mean, how do you anticipate that things will unfold this Friday? Well, at the moment, um, the opposition has the majority in parliament, which is uh, 26 plus one minister of state who resigned on Monday to join the opposition, making us 27. We also had a Minister of State who lost his seat as an MP due to um, not attending Parliament for three consecutive sittings, and that went to the court. And the court uh, vacated his seat on Monday. So basically we have a 27-member majority and a 51-member Parliament, and we lodged a motion against the Prime Minister eight days ago, and uh, we went to Parliament on Monday, and now we have a because the government didn't show up, there wasn't a quorum of two-thirds of members, according to the Constitution. Parliament now sits on Friday with a quorum of half, which we have. And so it looks like at this stage we will be returning to government on Friday. 
And I believe many may have this in the back of their mind. If Cecil Kilman is defeated in this latest vote of no confidence, Mr. Ringenvaru, will you put your hand up for the job or for the top job? Well, I'm available, but that's really up to the MPs to decide. Um, it's a consensus of the MPs who are now in the opposition bloc, and there's four main parties, including mine. And so, yeah, we have yet to determine who will be the Prime Minister. You're confident, but is there a clear yes from you that you will take the top job? No, it's mm. not. Are you confident, though, that the uh, opposition will have the numbers, though, to overthrow the government when Parliament next sits? Yes, yes, I'm confident of that. We have them now, and I don't envisage us losing those numbers in the next two days. I mean, one of the reasons you've given for this motion of no confidence against Sato Kilman is what you say is a failure to fulfil international obligations. Do you mind explaining a little bit more on that? Well, we had a, Vanuatu, as you know, has been a, a leader in uh, climate change advocacy, uh, especially this year with the International Court of Justice Advisory Opinion, which we managed to get the support of the entire United Nations General Assembly to forward on to the International Court of Justice. We've been pushing, pushing for a fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty and a fossil fuel free Pacific. And we had many initiatives that were in various forums to be discussed. However, the very important meeting of the Pacific Island Forum foreign ministers was not attended by the new minister, even though he had nothing else to do. It was one of the most important in the Pacific Island calendar. It's one of the most important meetings to attend because it sets the agenda for the Pacific leaders who meet annually to put out their annual statement just before COP. And that meeting is going to take place in November. And so we weren't represented at ministerial level to be able to put our agenda to make sure it got to the Pacific Island Forum leaders to be included in the final communique. Also, uh, as soon as the Prime Minister Thoda Kilman was elected, uh, he chose to call a parliament, an extra, another session immediately, for the purpose of suspending the former Prime Minister and the Speaker and voting out the Speaker. And when he called that parliament, it fell exactly on the dates of the General Assembly, which he should have attended. So he chose to you know, put some vindictive motions against fellow members of parliament rather than attend this uh, top meeting of international leaders that happens every year in, in uh, September in New York at the General Assembly. So it was one of the first years that uh, Vanuatu has not been represented as the Prime Minister or the President. Yes. Mr. Ringvo, we've heard from many people, though, in Vanuatu who, if it's not a political crisis, they're tired of the political instability. In that context, though, how do you justify your move to oust the government and possibly create more political instability? Our government had called an extraordinary session of parliament. Uh, it was called for the 16th of August, and that had a number of bills particularly aimed at creating political stability. There was a political party represent, uh, registration bill. There was an electoral bill amendment, and there were subs, uh, consequential amendments to other bills, other acts, which would have created the framework for starting to legislate political parties, legislate members of parliament, because at the moment, the problem with instability in Vanuatu is we have no laws regulating politics. And so we had called a parliament session with the first set of those laws, which have been developed over many years, but never got to parliament due to political you know, wrangling. And uh, unfortunately, those bills had to withdrawn because of the no confidence motion. And so one of the things we intend to do and is top of our priority is as soon as we get in, solidify the government and then get these laws passed so we can start before the end of this legislature 
get some laws in place that will provide much better political stability in the next legislature and in the future. Like you say, having to find laws that can regulate this uh, stability within the government or within politics. But what are the issues, though, that Vanuatu are facing at the moment? We are facing a quite severe economic uh, situation. Like the rest of the world, you know, very high inflation, very high cost of living. Uh, Like the rest of the world, we're facing those. Unfortunately, we we haven't been able to attract the kind of investment we need in this country to provide development and and in-country jobs, which is why you see a lot of uh, Nivanuatu coming to work in Australia under the Palm Scheme. Um, So we need to really get the economy moving, get create much more um, beneficial environment for a lot of activity to happen, economic activity. That's really what we need to sort of start to get more money and more revenue in government coffers to be able to provide better education services and health and so on. Mm, thank you for that. Uh, if you're just tuning into Pacific Beat, we've been discussing the political situation in Vanuatu, uh, where a newly formed government is facing a motion of no confidence, and we're joined this morning by Deputy Opposition Leader Ralph Reganvanu. Mr. Reganvanu, I want to turn away from the domestic politics now and take a look at a bit of a big political moment here in Australia. Uh, of course, you may know that the referendum is all about recognising the country's Indigenous people in the Constitution and to establish an Indigenous voice to Parliament. Uh, You tweeted uh, about this just the other day, saying the idea of a no vote fills you with dread. Why do you feel this way? You know, in the Pacific, we share a common history with uh, Australia, and particularly uh, Indigenous Australia. Uh, We were all kind of... uh, inverted commas, discovered or contacted by you know, the Western European imperialism around the same time. You know, Captain Cook came to Australia at the same time he came to Vanuatu and other countries and named them and so on. And then from then on, we experienced colonization by various European powers. Um, we, we experienced the same you know, severe depopulation, um, loss of culture and lifeways and so on. The difference was in Pacific Island countries, the white settlers never became the absolute majority, unlike what happened in settler colonies like New Zealand, Australia, New Caledonia. Um, and so we were able to go through a decolonization process. And then uh, maybe your listeners don't know this, but all the Pacific Island countries, the majority of people are Indigenous people, are First Nations people, like the Aboriginal people. Mm. And then we've gained our self-determination through a process of decolonization. We have our own constitutions. And all of those constitutions recognize the fact that, you know, these first peoples, uh, ourselves, we have these customary ties to ancestral ties to land and so on. And that is something that didn't happen in Australia. In New Zealand, they have the Treaty of Waitangi. So they have something. There was a sort of a, some sort of an agreement between the settler colonies and the indigenous people. Whereas in Australia, that never happened. And I think in Australia, in fact, there's a, a much worse, maybe maybe a much worse uh, history of um, what happened to the Indigenous people there. And I think it's something that we've we've had it recognised ourselves, and we w- we're waiting for that to be recognised in Australia, because it it only seems fair that the very first people who are there need to be recognised in the constitution of the country. And it's not, by no means a radical proposal. It's just you know, providing an advisory voice. Mm. And we have that in our constitution in Vanuatu also. We have an advisory voice to parliament for customary chiefs. And it's very much in the same 
model as the one being proposed in Australia under this referendum. Simply, you have a council of chiefs, and they, in the original constitution, it said they may advise the government on any bills relating to land, culture, or language. And in 2014, we made an amendment to say uh, the parliament must hear their views. So we made it a mandatory. Before that, it was like a not mandatory requirement. And we've done that because we see that that has improved the process by which we make decisions about these important issues. And that's why we made that slight amendment to require a mandatory voice from customary chiefs to our parliament. So we have an experience of that and it's worked very well. Yes. Could you explain, though, uh, what a no vote could ha- well, how it could harm Australia's reputation in the Pacific? We all know that there's a huge disparity in um, lifestyle outcomes or you know, health, social indicators, all of those things for Aboriginal people within Australia. And we see that as a great injustice because these are the original people and they are the suffering. They're the, they have the worst outcomes of any group in Australia, any ethnic group in Australia in terms of all uh, measures of living standard and so on. And uh, nothing seems to have worked to date. I mean, that, that has not been overcome. It's obvious that they need to have that overcome. And one of the ways is to get better better policies made that they have a part in deciding. Because one of the reasons we can see from outside is that they haven't really been listened to in the same way that in our countries we have the Indigenous people forming governments and they can talk about their own issues and decide for themselves. We haven't seen that happening and we see that as a great injustice. And we've always seen that as an injustice, and we see this as a unique opportunity to right that injustice. But if the Australian people choose not to right that injustice, it's going to reflect badly on Australia in general for us, because we're, we're going to think, you know, well, wh- why aren't you trying to fix this obvious, long-standing historical problem? Mm. And you've got to remember that a lot of Vanuatu people were taken over as slaves to Australia to work the cane fields. They intermarried with a lot of Aboriginal people. So a lot of Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islanders have Vanuatu blood, have Vanuatu ancestry, Solomon Islands, because of the blackbirding times. And we were also victims of the White Australia policy, which came in around 1901 and basically deported a lot of these new Vanuatu people who'd built the economy of Queensland particularly, just deported out because of the colour of their skin. And so we are part of that history. I would just want to say thank you very much for your time this morning, Mr. Regan Vanu. Thank you. And that, of course, is a Deputy Opposition Leader there in Vanuatu, Ralph Regan Vanu. You're listening to Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. Yes, welcome back to Pacific Beat. I'm your host, Agitha Ball. While the stadium has been built and roads have been fixed, Solomon Islands capital, Honiara, is just a month out from hosting the biggest sporting event in the region. But the Pacific Games have been overshadowed by a controversial multi-million dollar contract awarded to a barber shop to supply toilet paper to the Games. So joining us from the Solomon's capital, Honiara, is a youth activist, Regina Lepping. With that, I say good fella morning, Regina. Good fellow morning, Agnes. Thank you for joining us. Goodness, what was your reaction when you heard about this toilet paper oh. contract for, I hear, $6.4 million, which was awarded to this barbershop? Oh, it's, it's, a, it's a shock. And there's a lot of, um, you know, angry reaction, sad frustration. I mean, we're, we're preparing for the biggest games. It's the biggest historical event in Solomon Islands. And this pops up. It's, it's, it's just, yeah. 
frustrating. Well, instead of the barbershop, who should have the contract gone to? Oh, that's the question. That's the question. I'm like, uh, it's it's very hard to see clearly, like how how does a barbershop get such a uh, a contract? And and that's you know, it, it's people are actually calling out to find out more. Who are the other bidders, and who else uh, can would should be able to get such a contract? So all this issue is now you know raising so many questions to so many different areas. I'm referring to. Uh, catering for the game. So um, that's that's what we're trying to find out too. And it's uh, it's, it's just, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to make sense of it, even as speak. Yeah, and as you say, you're trying to make sense of it, but what are your peers or even your friends saying about the situation? Oh, so, you know, th- th- there's a lot of reaction to it. You know, it's all over Facebook. It's all over around town. People are talking about it. And um, there's just mixed reaction to it. You know, there's some young people who are, who are working as volunteers, who will be working as volunteers for the games and they're starting to work for it. And there's this thing that, you know, what happened before was uh, a call out for volunteers to start helping out for the games and it will be free. And they're like, okay, we're going to volunteer time. It's a good opportunity. But then now this issue comes out that there's a whole lot of millions of dollars spent in this, um, to be spent in this area. And everyone's like, then why are we working for free? So it it just brings up all that uh, negativity and like people are asking more questions than that. And not just that, but the other young people who are, are fighting in the corruption, uh, anti-corruption area, they are very, you know, starting to speak up more about this and looking into the issue as well as uh, young people who are, uh, we have young athletes um, training for the games also and hearing about this uh, amount of money and thinking, you know, looking back at their trainings, there are some who just, you know, finding their way to go to the sports venue to train. And it's very expensive. We have $3 bus fare back and forth. And it's very expensive to get there. There's some athletes who have their training gears not yet really available for them. There's some who cannot really go to the venue where they can feel um, how the game is going to actually be in, in the right venue for the Pacific Games. So the we have athletes who are struggling also. And this issue comes up once again. It's really affecting everyone, and it's very demoting for our young athletes, mm. as well as, um, yeah, yeah. Well, what's surprising is the toilet paper contract is not the only one. I hear there are concerns over the purchase of a building by Pacific Games organising body. Yes, yes, there is a a purchase of a building. Um, that that is yet to be more investigated and and find out more about it but all this is happening really you know secretly and it's not really a good time to have um such issues come up just prior to the games it's just next month but at the same time it's good that we're hearing this stuff because we're starting to like find out more why who is getting these beads who are getting these millions of dollars and is it put to good use of course it's not um taxpayers money but it's uh, other countries taxpayers money it's uh, it's aid money and it's it's really important for us to start looking into it and finding out how how are we working on these issues so so yeah the building is another another area and there's more of it that's going to come out this is just the tip of an iceberg and there's more of it that's going to come out and we just have to be ready to to really find out more and and supporting each one where we need to support yeah yeah, is this a symptom of a much wider or bigger problem, Regina? It is, it is. And Solomon Allen's been fighting corruption for a long time now. And we all know that 
uh, we are well aware that, you know, when, when it comes to such a big event, there will be like a lot of uh, interests in it and a lot of, you know, fraudsters coming up, a lot of fake company names applying for such uh, a work or bids. So it's, it's really like the people are expecting such a thing to happen. And some are even saying, oh, why are we just, you know, surprised about this now? We know it's been happening before. Why are we, you know, talking about it now? That's not the case. The case is uh, we have to keep on talking about this issue and we have to keep on um, pushing the authorities for transparency and to find out more about it because we're, we're all doing this for a nation. It's not good to have a couple of people just to ruin that for the whole nation. Yeah. Which which leads me to ask, Regina, what do the authorities need to do about the situation? So there's been a there is a lot of call right now um, amongst the public, the young people, the women, um, uh, to have a petition uh, to have um, investigation into this issue. So there's a call for investigation into these allegations and corruption. Um, it's not good for a few people to bring down the whole hard work of the nation. That's what they're saying. Um, things like this can happen in such big events and with aid money. So we need to have integrity, have transparency and accountability. And um, uh, for sure, everyone's behind this petition and everyone will actually support it, especially the young people. The young people are actually sharing a lot about this call for petition on Facebook. Um, that is shared by uh, Yumi Tok Tok Forum, one of the biggest uh, forums that are discussing um, issues in the country. And um, uh, young people are really supporting it. They're sharing it on their Facebook, um, gathering other peers to start to uh, uh, mobilize uh, about the petition. So there's a call for yeah, uh, uh, really having an investigation done in these um, authorities responsible. Really appreciate your time this morning, Regina. I really do hope everything gets sorted out, but thank you again for joining us. Thank you so much. Thank no you. worries. That is Regina Lepping, Solomon Islands youth activist. And Pacific Beat has invited the owners of the company that's been awarded the controversial contract for an interview. Up next, it is News Wrap with producer Carla Evans right here on Pacific Beat. For centuries, Pacific Islanders have been sharing stories across the region. Stories from the Pacific is a weekly program that honours that tradition, allowing you to hear in-depth personal stories from sports people to farmers, artists to teachers, activists to entrepreneurs with one thing in common, their Pacific heritage and a unique and incredible story to tell. Stories from the Pacific, Wednesday mornings at 9 o'clock PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. Yes, it is that time where, of course, we head around the region just to see what is happening. And, of course, we are brought, uh, that's brought by producer Carl Evans this morning. How are you doing? I'm well, Aggie. I wondered if I was, <laughs> if we were going to have time to get me up today. It's been a busy show. <laughs> we can't get uh, the show done without your segment, <laughs> mate. Uh, look, we head to the Solomon Islands. Yes, opposition leader is urging the government to address allegations of fraud within building contracts issued for the Pacific Games. Is that right? Yes, that's right. So uh, Matthew Wale has called on the PM to urge 
urgently summon the National Housing Authority, and that comes after his office received numerous complaints of corruption surrounding the distribution of contracts to local suppliers and contractors. So he was told that certain individuals within the NHA are awarding highly questionable contracts to their friends and associates uh, with values that are staggering in cost. And, uh, and he's worried that some individuals within the NHA uh, are exploiting the Pacific Games funds for personal gain, Aggie. Well, you know, we did just hear from uh, youth activist Regina Lepping, but what action would he like to see uh, the PM take? Yeah, well, firstly, uh, he wants a comprehensive audit of all Pacific Games funds. Uh, additionally, he's urged the Treasury's internal audit department to expedite their investigations to safeguard public funds from being exhausted uh, through crap practice, practices and inflated contracts. Uh, he even singled out one particular building, the Cheng's building, um, as one where transparency uh, was, was needed. So, yeah, it'll be very interesting to see um, what the government's response is to this, especially so close to the Pacific Games, which is uh, yeah, only a couple, only one month away, virtually. <laughs> Literally. Uh, okay, we head to a New Zealand man to, uh, who was counting his blessings after a horror holiday almost claimed his life in Fiji. Goodness, what happened? Yeah, this is a crazy story. It's, I've seen it reported on a, on a number of outlets, uh, the New Zealand Herald being the main one, but uh, a man from Hamilton, his name is uh, Karain Ekitone, was uh, holidaying in Fiji in July. Um, he was snorkeling on Dravuni Island in a boat-free area. Uh, it was then that he was hit by a passing power boat uh, where his head collided with the propeller. Um, his wrist was severed in the accident, uh, which cut through his artery, which caused his heart to stop. Uh, and he was revived after a witness swam to his aid to deliver CPR. So, I mean, that, that was the first, um, the first bullet he dodged, essentially. He was then airlifted to Suva uh, and was placed on a ventilator. Uh, and, and his family, well, his wife was told that he would, he was, he would likely die. Um, his wife then booked a Medivac flight from Brisbane to take them back to New Zealand. However, that was delayed because hospital staff allegedly didn't file the paperwork in time. He then flatlined again on a Mercy flight home uh, and finally underwent surgery when he got back. And it was during that pre-surgery scan that doctors found cancer in his kidneys, uh, which likely would have claimed his life if it went undetected. Um, however, that got removed and, uh, and following the surgery, despite losing two kilos and, and virtually you know, half his blood, uh, he has made a miraculous recovery. I am amazed. This is a miracle. But how is he doing now? Well, it's it's incredible. You know, um, basically, doctors had warned his wife uh, before the surgery that he he would potentially wake up blind, paralyzed, and with a different personality altogether, given the trauma that his body had gone through. But um, he woke up, uh, I believe, to an Amy Winehouse song. They first noticed good signs when he's when his foot started tapping. Um, he was standing uh, within seven days, um, and he, he's regained all co- cognitive function. He's the same person. He did lose fifty percent of his sight, however. But given look, given what he went through, yeah, very much counting his blessings. And um, absolutely, he's a he, he's a religious man, and, and he has God to thank. Oh, thank God for that. Uh, well, let's end off on. Uh, Sport, where goodness, Tor Samoa have selected their squad uh, to take part in the upcoming Pacific Championship. Who has made the cut? Yeah, so six players who featured in this year's NRL Grand Final have been named. Uh, Penrith players Stephen Crichton, uh, Spencer Liniu, uh, Isaac Targo and Brian Toto will be joined by Brisbane's uh, Keenan Palacia and Jesse Arthurs. Uh, they'll all be part of the squad who will face Australia and New Zealand uh, in the tournament starting later this month. Uh, Cowboys back Murray Talangi uh, has also been named. 
he'll make his first appearance in blue after representing Australia at the World Cup last year. And uh, Junior Paolo, Royce Hunt, uh, there's some other notable names. However, Penrith 5'8", Jerome Luai, has been ruled out uh, with a shoulder injury. All right. Uh, but there's a good lineup so far. Uh, the Oceania Futsal Nations Cup continues today. What's on the fixture? That's right. So Fiji and Vanuatu will battle it out for a place in the knockout stage. Uh, that is for the second qualification spot in Group A. New Zealand claimed the first qualification spot on Monday with a 7-2 win over Fiji. Uh, they beat Vanuatu 6-3 prior to that, meaning Vanuatu and Fiji now must duke it out. Uh, a draw between the two would see Vanuatu prog- progress on goal difference, so Fiji must win, but Vanuatu just have to scrape through uh, with the draw. Um, meanwhile, in Group B, Samoa will play the Solomon Islands and New Caledonia will play Tahiti, but from what I understand, Group B still very much wide open. Nice. Love seeing our Pacific people getting out there uh, and doing well in sport. Again, thank you for always uh, providing us with our news rep, but that is producer Carl Evans here on Pacific Beat. Kick off your Sunday with Sosafina for Morley on Pacific Sundays, right here on ABC Radio Australia. Pacific Sundays is a laid-back weekly wrap of all things Pacific, from news, sport and entertainment to the best island music vibes. So whether you're chilling out, heading off to church or catching up with family, be entertained as you do it with Pacific Sundays. Every Sunday at 6am PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. Welcome back to Pacific Beach. It's your host, Aggie Tupal, where we head to Santa Catalina in eastern Solomon Islands, where they have a very special way of dealing with disputes and settling grievances. Once a year, they pick up a spear and challenge their family members to battle. It's a unique but dangerous custom, and as Chris Narita Almanuleong found out, there's even a bigger danger for the island's residents. It's 2 a.m. The only light on the island of Santa Catalina is from burning embers. Back in the days, our old people say this act is to cleanse the island from any sickness or bad omen. The Wagasia Festival begins. myself on the beach with groups of young girls and boys sharing betel nut and waiting in anticipation for the spear fighting to begin in just about four hours. Among the group is Irene Dagi mother of one and first-timer to witness this festival. I brought my son to learn so that the next time he can take part. Wogasia to me is the new year for the people of Makira. It brings peace when there are disputes and as long as this day ends with feasting, problems are solved. Dawn breaks and the two tribes of the island, Amoya and Atawa, emerge on either side of the beach. Custom rules mean they're only to fight their cousins. 
They line up on the sand and in the shallows, looking for their family member to battle. After 10 minutes, the battle is over. Actual spears thrown at real people. There is genuine danger. I even saw a warrior limping after a direct spear hit his leg. Hey, my body is painful. I'm out of breath. Santa Catalina is one of the most remote places in Solomon Islands. Silas Maka is the president of the Santa Catalina Association. He believes the festival and the spear fight is their way of pushing back. Some of the ways that we live are influenced by the external culture. Wogasia reminds us to slow down and think. But he says another threat is proving far more dangerous. Our traditional sites for spear fighting have been washed away. They are lost. The tide has changed. It's never low tide anymore. It's always high tide. The United Nations has identified the island as highly vulnerable to cyclones and earthquakes. But it says its biggest threat is rising sea levels. For the past four years, Rose Freddy has seen firsthand the effects of this. The usual practice is we plant yams a year before the hogasia to be ready for harvest in time for our feasting. But now we have to buy from the mainland. How does it feel like being unable to plant? It feels terrible because we are using other root crops during the feasting that has never been part of our practice. It doesn't look good that we are using cassava and swamp taro for our traditional puddings. But this year marks the first time since COVID that tourists have been able to return to the island to witness its ancient traditions. It has given Santa Catalina's small economy a much-needed boost, with local artists selling carvings and land access fees being paid to the villagers. Interesting, very emotional in a way, very frightening. That was phenomenal. I've never experienced anything like that before. After the morning spear fight, women walk up the hill. Here they will have an intricate banana leaf suit woven around them known as mwakomako. They hold small sticks and stones and ask the gods to bless the soil, symbolizing the lifeblood of the village, food and farming. In the afternoon, the chanting and the yelling grow louder. It's the final spear fight. The intensity is such that within minutes, the chiefs end the contest.
with the fighting over and peace restored, a score of women adorned in makomako go into the ocean and are handed the conch shells. They sound him for a final time and release the spirit to the sea. The same conch shells are then stored for next year's Wogasia. That night, villagers gather in groups to feast, marking the end of the festivities. As for Irene Dagi, she's adamant the festival will continue for generations to come and it's her duty to teach her son. It will be passed on to the next generation. As you can see, the children are with the elders throughout the festival. They are being trained by them so Wogasia can be passed on. And that's Irene Dougie from Santa Catalina Island ending that report from Chris Narita Almanuliang, ABC's reporter in Solomon Islands. Well, a new UN report has found a number of Pacific countries are vulnerable to human trafficking. The Federated States of Micronesia, Fiji, Palau, Marshall Islands, Solomon Islands and Tonga are listed as vulnerable to exploitation and the recruitment of trafficking victims. Henrietta McNeil is a researcher specialising in transnational uh, national crime and Pacific geopolitics at the Australian National University. Uh, she joins us this morning to help us understand this report with that I say good morning, Henrietta. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, no worries. Well, why uh, Federated States of Micronesia, Fiji, Palau, Marshall Islands and even Tonga? I mean, what is it about these countries that make them that vulnerable to human trafficking? Yeah, so I think that, that these countries, that they're just the ones that the, the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime report has, has looked into. But I think we're definitely seeing that that there's an increase in in human trafficking at the moment, um, particularly because there's vulnerabilities um, when people are already vulnerable. So people with disabilities, those experiencing financial hardship or unemployment, environmental stresses, like parental care, all of these vulnerabilities increase the risk of human trafficking. So particularly with the economic hardship we've seen throughout the region, um, from COVID-19, we have seen a rise in human trafficking, and that's, that's what this report shows. Yeah, I mean, as someone who researches this field, were there any surprises in this report, though? Not huge surprises, to be honest, but um, I guess we are seeing, as, as I said, an increase in, in human trafficking. It showed that what we already knew, that the majority of trafficking in persons to Pacific Islands is for forced labour, so often bringing migrants to Pacific Island countries for the purposes of exploitation, although there is some uh, domestic trafficking and commercial sex trafficking as well. So I guess the thing that surprised me or is certainly concerning is the rise in both the domestic and international trafficking of children. So um, we've seen over the past year an increase in child trafficking, particularly post-COVID-19 when those financial vulnerabilities rose. Um, there was a comment in the report that from one interviewee who noted that there were cases of pregnant women in the Marshall Islands being trafficked to the US for the purposes of selling newborn babies. So I don't want to overstate it, but I certainly wouldn't want to see it rise. And it's, it's certainly concerning and something that, that law enforcement need to be aware of. 
Yeah, very concerning. Um, and out of those six countries, I believe Palau and Fiji had a higher prevalence. Why is that? Yeah, the the truth is that that the we're dealing with invisible numbers here, and so the the, the report says that there's zero point five percent of people in Fiji who have experienced some form of trafficking or exploitation over the past five years. So. In, in actual figures, that's just over 5,000 people, which is actually quite a lot. Um, similarly, it says about 0.6% of p- people in Palau. Um, I think these, these were often uh, movements of travel hub anyway. Um, uh, yeah, movements of people anyway. And so, so there are um, migrants coming in um, who are particularly vulnerable to, to being trafficked. Um, we, I guess the common thing that we're seeing is um, migrants exploiting other migrants. Um, so bringing them in for hospitality, construction, agricultural, forestry industries. Um, and they might have been told they were going to go somewhere else or they're going to go different, to do different work. Um, and so that's that deception element of, of human trafficking. Um, then they become abused. They're not necessarily given adequate food, shelter or paid what they were promised. Um, or there might be unnecessary deductions and they might have their passports removed. So that's that's the majority of what we're seeing in the Pacific region um, and, and particularly in, in Fiji and Palau. Yeah, definitely. Uh, those are many stories we've probably already heard already. But So then what's the way forward for Pacific countries in having to deal with human trafficking? Was there uh, any recommendations? Yeah, so the report highlighted just how difficult human trafficking is to detect and prosecute, you know. Deception and coercion can't be seen at the border like uh, through an X-ray or a detector dog like drug trafficking can. It requires an ongoing all-of-government response past the airport and into our, our communities, our workplaces, our churches, those places where we can use our close-knit communities as a form of resilience um, and people can see when, when something's not quite going right, someone's not being treated right, and they can report that to the authorities. Um, but but it did, did highlight that, that just how difficult it is to prosecute. So in those six countries that you mentioned, between 2017 and 2020, there were 100 cases reported. Of that, 50 people were investigated and only 25 prosecuted. So all countries were, were encouraged to strengthen their data on human trafficking, although this requires resource and funding, as we always hear. Um, but we're also us to, to increase the, the four P's in human trafficking. So protection of migrants, prevention um, of it happening, and so awareness in our communities, prosecutions and making sure that the, the legislation is up to date and able to, to actually prosecute these, these crimes, um, and also partnerships. So within the community, with churches, with NGOs, um, and internationally as well with, with other um, agencies that are able to help in these situations. Henrietta, we believe, though, that one of the biggest cases in the region uh, was the Bangladeshi nationals in Vanuatu. Uh, why has this case taken so long to resolve? Oh, this was an incredibly difficult case. Um, it involved, uh, I think, 107 Bangladeshi nationals who were trafficked to Vanuatu. Um, they'd been promised employment, but in reality they were enslaved, working without pay, their passports taken from them, and they were physically abused. Um, I guess because this was such a large case, it really highlighted a number of the issues, not just for law enforcement and managing a prosecution with, with so many victims and their testimonies, but also the protection of that number of victims. So while the trial went ahead, um, once the crime had been reported and that scale of victims were identified, they needed food, shelter, necessities, 
visas to be able to remain and they weren't able to work while they were on those visas. So this is on a really large scale and it requires that international assistance I just mentioned. Um, the trial itself was also quite complex. There's no, well, at, the, at that time there was no human trafficking legislation in Vanuatu, so they had to rely on those international conventions and in court, which is um, a, a tricky process in itself. And then when the trial was concluded last year and four Bangladeshi nationals were convicted of human trafficking, um, they received, I think, between seven and 14 years imprisonment each. Um, after that case was closed, um, many of the victims felt unsafe returning to Bangladesh. And so they're trying to claim refugee status, but Vanuatu is not a signatory to the Refugee Convention. So again, it's another complication. Um, but this case in itself, just because of the scale of it, and it's the first really big case that we've seen in the Pacific region, it, it highlights a number of those challenges that the Pacific states have when, when dealing with such a complex human trafficking case um, for both prosecution and yeah. protection. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm thinking, is there any type of sort of compensation for those who have been uh, trafficked to uh, places like Vanuatu? But I quickly want to get this in before we do wrap up, uh, Henrietta. Is it usually then foreigners who are coming into the Pacific who are the victims or uh, even in this report, was there? What about Pacific Islanders? Are they also being exploited? Yeah, yeah. So um, one of the things we are seeing is the increasing movement of Pacific Island nationals to other parts of Oceania. So New Zealand has had two cases: one involving Fijians and one involving Samoans. Um, and, and so those have both gone to court and, and been uh, prosecuted. Um, there's also some domestic uh, trafficking happening in, in Pacific Islands, um, including for sexual exploitation. Um, it's a bit happening in the fishing industry, um, but again, it's it's not as prevalent as, as trafficking for the purposes of, of forced labour, um, and, and particularly those migrants coming in and, and exporting other migrants. Yeah, overall message then that you would want, I suppose, governments and the, these islands to know and understand that they need to do better. I mean, ensure that the legislation is up to date so that if these things do occur, then, then it's able to be prosecuted. But also, you know, use those really, really tight, close-knit communities that we have in the Pacific as a form of resilience against transnational crime because we know what's happening in our communities and we're able to report it. So report it if you see something that, that's not that doesn't seem right if someone's not being treated well. Um, that That's what I would say to our communities and, and get that awareness out there so that, so that people know that that's not right and that they need to report it. Can I quickly ask, uh, Henrietta, in regards to, uh, and I did previously say it, about compensation for those who have been trafficked. Is that something that is awarded to them? I understand that the, the Bangladeshi victims are um, applying for it. I, I'm not sure how that, that is going at the moment. I know it's quite a, sub a substantial amount, particularly given the, the number of victims. Um, I guess it's it's like many other things, you know, uh, where does the budget lie and who who pays for that and, and how does it work? So I think Pacific states are working through that at the moment. I imagine Vanuatu is, is, is tightly uh, watching that and, and seeing what they can do. Appreciate your time this morning, Henrietta. Great insight into this. So thank you again for sharing. Thank you very much. No worries. That is Henrietta McNeil, a researcher at the Australian National University. And that brings us to the end of our show. I uh, appreciate your time this morning. A showdown is looming in Vanuatu with MPs to decide if Prime Minister Sato Kilman will keep his job. Deputy Leader of the Opposition, Ralph Regan Vanu, says he's confident of removing him from office. Yes, I'm confident of that. We have them now and I don't envisage us losing those numbers in the next two days. 
I'll be back at the same time tomorrow. That's at 6am PNG time. But again, we are on this afternoon at 3pm PNG time. Stay tuned to ABC Radio Australia, though, because news is next, and then coming up after that is Nisha Daily. We'd like to acknowledge that Pacific Beat was produced on the lands of the Bunurong and Wurundjeri peoples of the Kulin Nation. Until then, I'm Aggie Dubong. This is Pacific Beat. Pacific Beat.